You can be seated this morning. You've been standing up a while. We're going to go to pastor's text this morning, two different texts. Exodus 25, verses 1 through 9. Then we're going to jump over to Joel 2, 15 through 18. Exodus 25, 1 through 9. Joel 2, 15 through 18. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they may bring me an offering of every man that giveth it willingly. With his heart ye shall take my offering. And this is the offering which ye shall take of them, gold, silver, and brass, and blue, and purple, and scarlet, and fine linen, and goat's hair, and ram skins dyed red, and badgered skins, and shittim wood, oil for the light, spices for anointing oil, and for sweet incense, onyx stones, and stones to be set in the ephod, and in the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them, according to all that I shew thee after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. Joel 2, 15 through 18. Don't litter, people. Joel 2, 15 through 18. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and those that suck the breast. Let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore, should they say among the people, where is their God? Then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. Will you pray with me, Lord Jesus? We thank you for your word, that it is true. To these, take these moments to, to focus ourselves, to submit ourselves, to hear your word, and therefore do it. I pray you'd help our pastor preach that which you've put in his soul. Let it spring forth in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's good to see you in the house of the Lord this morning. Yes, give the Lord praise. He's worthy of it all. Hallelujah. The Bible tells us in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. And uh, this morning, the message is a little bit in that arena. It's not only a doctrinal message, it's not something that's just biblical, but it is reproof, it is correction, and it's instruction. That's a pastor's job sometimes. Some of you are gonna love me, some of you are not gonna like me, some of you are gonna be in between, but I wanna tell you something, all of you gotta love me. Look at somebody and say, you gotta love him. Amen, you gotta love me here this morning. The Lord has laid a heavy word upon my heart this morning, I wanna get right into it. But my intention today is to try to mesh these two scriptures together and to speak to you how they resonate and how they speak to us as a people today. The, symbol, the symbolics of the book of Job that we see in the life of Israel in the Old Testament uh, is very relevant and speaks volume to us to where we are at as a church and as a nation. The prophetic nature of these verses also point out the time frame that some of these things are going to happen, which is spelled out within the scriptures in the book of Job when it says in the last days. And when he talks about in the last days, he's talking about these things are gonna happen in our time, then we're gonna see them with our visible eyes. Then we're going to experience them as a people of God. So it's not just the symbolics to set out in the scripture that sets the tone of this message, but the tone is also set by the prophetic utterance from the prophet Joel himself. The symbolisms in the book of Exodus that we just read to you shows us and tells us where we are to 
to be as a people of God and it gives us the pattern into which you and I are to live by. You think, man, I don't even understand that passage of scripture and we're not gonna get in the meat of it today. This sermon may very well become a more of a series than what I think because I don't think that I'm gonna be able to get through with just in a few handfuls of sermons. It's very deep and we're gonna get through some symbolics in the Old Testament that gives us a, a revelation of where we are to be on the timetable of God and where we are to be in the act of worship and how we're to conduct ourselves and how we are to live and what he's expecting out of us as a people of God. I want you to bear with me as I begin to build this sermon, tie it all together, and a lot of it's gonna come at a latter date, so I'm gonna just get into one little arena. I'm not even gonna get that far into the sermon today. Just bear with me, and one of the problems, I didn't intend to do it this way, but I will not be preaching next Sunday because it's Pastor's Appreciation Day, and they got, brother, I think somebody coming, and anyway, uh, it'll be down the line when I begin to sit back in this series, so don't forget about this sermon today because it's gonna tie everything together. It's gonna be the beginning of where we want to go. Let's start with our text that is in the book of Exodus chapter 25. In this chapter, we see that Moses was commanded to construct a tabernacle. In the third month after the Exodus from Egypt, the nation of Israel reached the plains of what they call Erapha. And it's, it's north of Mount Sinai, according to the book of Exodus chapter 19, verse one. The valley was surrounded by towering hills on each side. They were about 3,000 feet in elevation. But in the distance, there was a mountaintop that towered high above all the other mountains, and it's called Jebel Musa, which means Moses' mount. Moses ascended that mountain eight different times to confer with God within his lifetime. And during the sixth ascent, which is found in the book of Exodus chapter 24 verse 12, it was Moses' first time to spend 40 days upon that mount with God. Can you imagine spending 40 days upon top of a mountain conferring with God? And it was at this point of time that God gave Moses the pattern of their tabernacle that we're gonna be getting into a little bit later. For six days, Moses waited to hear from God and yet God did not speak a word. Have you ever been waiting on God and God not speak a word? Have you ever prayed and it feel like your prayers just go boom, boom? Have you ever felt like that you you can't even hardly pray. There's no liberty to pray. Everything you do, you're just walling around hoping that God's listening to you. Well, I'm sure that Moses had felt that way for six days. Uh, he's up there to confer with God and the six solid days he's praying, he's fasting, he's committed himself to be up there and yet God has not said a word to him. He's not whispered, he's not spoke, he's not given any sign, he's not done anything. However, it was on the seventh day of his prayer, the number of completion, that God God broke his silence and said to him, speak unto the children of Israel and let them make me a sanctuary because one of the reasons that God wanted a sanctuary was for the purpose that he may dwell with his people. His heart has never changed. His desire has never changed. God wants to be with us here this morning. As a matter of fact, he made us a promise where two or three are gathered together in his name that he's in the midst of them. Can I have an amen? He promised us that he would never leave us or forsake us. It's God's desire to meet with you always. Remember that. Sometimes it's gotten not good enough that we just pray, but we have to pray through. We have to complete the task and the burden that's upon our hearts. For six solid days, Moses prayed and petitioned God, but heard not a word from him. But on the seventh day, God begins to show up and God begins to speak. Oh, hallelujah. And when are we going to learn that it is always in his timing and not ours? 
Can I have an amen with that? We've been praying and praying and praying and praying and praying for a perpetual revival. It's not come yet, but I want to tell you, I'm not giving up. Are you giving up? Are you stopping just because things ain't happening when you want it, how you want it? Things has happened that I don't understand in the last few years. We've lost some precious families in depth that we prayed for. I don't understand, but I'm not giving up. I'm not stopping. And can I tell you, when are we going to learn that God's got an order, God's got a purpose, God's got a plan for everything, and everything's going to be done in his timing? God, Brother Zach quoted that scripture, when the fullness of time has come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. I want to tell you, Jesus didn't come until the fullness of time. He didn't come until it was time for him to come. And I want you to know, God's not going to just start doing things. Our little whispers, we go up to McDonald's and we say, we want a hamburger, and if that thing ain't out there within a minute, minute and a half, we're mad as a hornet. I was standing in a line at a little Dairy Queen the other day, and there was a couple in front of me, and the poor little girls was busy, and they stood there maybe a minute and a half, two minutes, and the man got furiously mad because they wasn't coming over there and waiting on him right then, and he said, let's get out of here, and they walked out. And I want to tell you, that's the way we are with God a lot of times. We get frustrated and trying to wait for something, and we don't know how to lay hold of the horns of the altar and to be patient and let God have his perfect work in our lives. He's not dead. He's not elusive. He's attentive the very first time that we cry, but he's just not showed up yet, but he will. Somebody give God praise. Somebody needs to understand it's not over until it's, until it's over. And so we're fretting and we're worrying and we got all kinds of doubt and unbelief and we wonder why God ain't moving. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and the power and of a sound mind. Can I have an amen? There's nothing to fret. There's nothing to fear. There's nothing to be worried about. You're sitting around there and you're just falling apart over the things that's going on around your family and in your family. Well, I want to tell you, if you're a praying man, if you're a righteous man, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And I'm here to tell you, God's hearing you and them children are on, a, are on the radar of God and God has a plan and God has a purpose and God has a time. Don't give in to the fretting and the worry and the anxiety of this old world. Can I have it? God's going to move. Look at somebody and say, God's going to move. I'm about to preach. Somebody shout unto the Lord here today. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Sometimes I don't know what to do myself up here. The Lord's here this morning. One of the reasons we don't have victory is because we lose patience and we abort the promise through a spirit of unbelief and through a spirit of impatience. Hebrews 10 and verse 35 and 36 says, cast not away your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. He says, stay confident, because if you stay confident, you're gonna be rewarded. Amen, it has a great reward to it if you'll be confident. Don't throw away your confidence. And then he says in verse 36, for you have need of patience that after you've done the will of God that you might receive the promise. In other words, we all have a promise, but we're not gonna see it if we don't remain patient. In other words, don't abort the promise by being impatient. Matter of fact, this is why the Proverbs 14, 29 says, listen to this, I like this passage of scripture. I don't know, know what translation is in, I forgot to look it up, but it says, patience leads to abundant understanding. Say that, patience leads to abundant understanding, but impatience leads to stupid mistakes. And how true that that is, if you don't believe that, ask Abraham and ask Sarah, who got tired of waiting for the seed of promise, the Isaac, which was to be born, and they went out and made a little old plan, and they get a Hagar, and, it, and, and Abraham goes into Hagar, and a seed of flesh is born by the name of Ishmael and becomes the enemy of Israel, and they're still dealing with old Ishmael today. Can I tell you, don't get impatient. 
you'll lose the promise. This is why that Paul said in Romans 8 and 25, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it and we wait in patience. Matter of fact, Isaiah 40 verse 31 says, but they who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings of eagles. They shall run and not be where they shall walk and they shall not faint. We gotta wait upon the Lord. This is the promise to those that don't give up and to those that persevere in the faith and to those that don't lose heart. When Moses descended from the mount to carry out his mission, he found Israel in idolatrous, uh, idolatrous worship and his heart broke. He come down off the mount and he looks down here and here they are in idolatry. This teaches us that the absence of a legitimate leader and a, leg a legitimate worship center and a pattern of worship for the nation will cause a nation or a people to give away to idolatry. Israel did not know how to worship God so in the absence of their leader and, and the absence of a correct mode of worship, they created a false god to worship, which was a pattern after the calf worship of Egypt. Why did they go back to uh, doing what they seen in Egypt? Because it was their influence. It was what was before them for 400 years. You better be careful what's influencing you. It may lead you into an area that you don't want to go. Can I have an Amen. And this is what happens when there's no true pattern of worship in and among a nation or a people. And this is why God gave the instruction of Moses upon that mountain. When the church loses its worship, it will always be seen in the church turning to idolatry. Moses destroyed the golden calf and even the gold that had been utilized to construct the idol was considered to be polluted and it was not to be used in the, not one ounce of it was to be used in that temple. The gold would not even be allowed to be used for the construction of the temple, not only because of its pollutions, but it was gonna be used first time in scripture that I could find it and the last time that I could find it where gold was actually gonna be a material that would be used in the form of a judgment. Brass has always represented judgment in the word of God and gold has always signified the purity of the saints of God. But God says, if you want to serve a golden calf, I'll tell you what we're going to do. Moses had it melted and he got it and he poured it down the throats of the people and made them drink it and it killed them. Can I have an amen? This was serious business of what was going on while Moses is up on top of that mountain. It is here on the hills of Israel's idolatry that Moses introduces to them the legitimate and acceptable pattern of worship that God gave him on Mount Jebel Musa for the tabernacle. God teaches him in this tabernacle how they're to worship, what they are to do, what each, what each furnishing symbolize. This is not merely a pattern of worship then, but it is also still God's pattern of worship for us today. God has not changed, and we'll reveal that in future sermon. But the Old Testament is our schoolmaster according to the word of God in Romans 15 and four. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scripture might have hope. Buried in the rituals of these sacrifices in the holy days, the symbols of the furniture and the elements are the principles that still govern heavenly worship today in this 21st century. Can I tell this congregation, there is a right way to worship. There is a right order to service. Can I have an amen? This was the very reason that God commanded Moses to erect him a tabernacle in the first place. The first symbolism that I wanna talk about is not gonna be all these different furnishings, different colors, the badger skins and all that. I don't even know if we're gonna get that for because uh, my pastor one time taught us this, uh, the tabernacle and every little, every little symbol that it was there and he taught on it on a Wednesday night. He taught two hours every Wednesday night and he done it for a year just on the tabernacle alone. So I'm not gonna do that. We don't have time for that. But the first symbolism that we're gonna have to get a hold of, how many want perpetual revival? Do you really want it? 
How many want to see a move of God? Well, about, uh, about 20% of it. How many really want to see God do something? Come on, I'm, I'm being serious with you here today. Yes, we all want to see God move, don't we? But the first symbolism that we're going to have to get right is the tabernacle itself. I'm so tired of the false teaching and the arrogance and the pride of man that says that you, one does not have to go to church to be a Christian and to serve God. That is a lie from the pits of hell. I want to tell you that right now. There is a teaching in the movement that's trying to make void the importance of the church and the need of coming together. There is a replacement theology that's becoming practice among the American culture. And mainly it's in America, it's in other parts of the world, but not near as much as it is in the Western, in the Western part over here in America. There is a home church, there's an internet church, there's a cafe church, there's life groups, there's cell groups, there's TV church, there's rodeo church, and the this goes on and on and on and on. You won't believe how many different titles there is concerning church. These may be ministries that are reaching out, but they are not the church and they're not to replace the church. And when it does replace the church, it's idolatry. This is what Jeroboam did in the Old Testament. Matter of fact, he went out here and he said, you know what, it's just a long walk and it's just a hardship and it's inconvenient for all the people to go down to the tabernacle at Jerusalem to worship. So I'm gonna put up a little worship center over here and I'm gonna put one up over here at Dan and one at Bethel and all. I'm gonna make it convenient for the people and judgment fell upon him because of it and that worship was not accepted by God because God had commanded them that the place of worship was to be Jerusalem. Homestead studies are great and we're supposed to do all of that. Internet outreach, broadcast, interacting, outreaching is wonderful and we, we need to continually do that. Them are great and wonderful, powerful ministries but they do not take the place of the church. Somebody help me say amen. We have so-called internet church, and I love that. That's fine that we might be reaching those through the internet, but if we not, do not get them connected, and if they do not assemble with the church body where the Old Testament patterns of worship is visible in practice, then it is not a church. Amen? Watching church on TV is great. It can be a source of encouragement. It can be a source of, uh, uh, of edification, but it's not the church. There's all kinds of mega churches right now, and you know what they're doing? They're doing away with their live streaming. You know why? Because their attendance is plummeting in this 21st century because people would rather stay at home and watch them on television than come to the house of God. And we're debating that ourselves around here. You can say whatever you want, but services online cannot compare to them being experienced live. There's something about that live service coming together that God has created, that God has ordered, and that God has commanded. Yes, it is true that our bodies is the temple of the Holy Spirit. I've heard that all of my life and that we're a part of the church. But did you hear that word part? It is also true that if we're yielding our bodies to the Holy Spirit as we're supposed to, I want you to know that we will be obeying the principles that set out in Scripture and we would be faithful to the pattern of worship that God has designed for us and that we would be in the house of the Lord during worship time. Our tithe and offering would not be given to a TV ministry or a TV evangelist and our other ministries. And, they would, and I want to tell you, our tithe would be given to the church. Church is not designed to where you can get a cup of one coffee and a cup of tea, sit in your pajamas on a nice soft couch, let your children play, and enjoy church service. Come on, somebody. That's not church. There's a sacrifice to worship. And let me tell you, where there is no sacrifice, there is no true biblical worship. I want to tell you, David said, I'm not going to offer anything to God that don't cost me something. Can I have an amen? There's no such thing as, well, brother, I'll be there in spirit. I want to tell you, we don't need no ghost around here. We need some tangible people. 
Ghosts don't pay tithes. Ghosts don't lay hands on people. Ghosts don't serve. Ghosts don't give in the offering. Ghosts don't pray around the altar. Come on, somebody, help me preach. Amen. I, I don't want you to t ever tell me, well, I'll be there in spirit, but I'm not going to be there in body. We need you here. Can I have an amen? This is what the American church has failed to see. Already I'm feeling people reject this message. And I want to tell you, it's important that we understand where our, the enemy has led the American culture. And if we're not careful, the church is going to follow that culture. Everybody says, well, church service was actually created because of culture. If you want a real culture, then go back to the book of Acts. And I want to tell you, yes, they went from house to house breaking bread. And they went to have all these different fellowships. But when it come time to come to the house of the Lord, they went down to the temple and they sacrificed and they praised. And they worshiped and they gave their uh, their, their gifts to God and their service to the Lord. And if you want to follow their pattern, they went every single day. They went in the morning to pray. They went at noon to pray. They went at night to pray. They had seasons of prayer at the house of the Lord. Don't give me, if you want culture, then go back to a biblical culture. And I want to tell you, God is coming for a church that's without spot or blemish or any such thing. He's looking for a church that'll be the church. God, help me preach right here. This is why the American culture has failed to see. They want a comfortable church, a relative church, a feel-good church, a seeker-sensitive church. One of the most arrogant, prideful, self-righteous things that is among, said among believers is this. Well, you know, I really don't get anything out of church. I don't come to Wednesday night services because I don't like the style of teaching techniques. I don't come on Sunday night because... You know, the preaching styles isn't what I like. Or the design of the service, it just don't fit me and my family. Or I just don't get anything out of it. Analyze them statements for a minute. Really dissect them statements. They're the most arrogant, hypocritical. I can't even get meaner. I'll tell you what Paul said about them. It's manure. Amen. Here's the problem. Where do you see anywhere in scripture that coming to church is all about you? It's nowhere to be found. It has nothing to do with you. It has to do with him. Sometimes it isn't that you need the church. The church needs you. Sometimes a church is a sacrifice. It's not always a thrill for me to come. I heard a story one time about a man and his mama come to him and said, son, I want you to go to church with me. I don't want to go to church. I'm not going to church today, but you need to go to church. Well, why do I need to go to church, mom? Well, number one, your mama's asking you to tell you how to honor your mama. And number two, it's just the right thing to do. And number three, you're the pastor. <laughs> Sometimes it's not fun for me to be here. It's not always fun and excitement. Sometimes it's a sacrifice. But there's one thing I've always known. It's always a divine privilege. To be in, it was David that said, I was glad when they said, let's go to the house of the Lord. The church needs to be a people to, the church, the church needs people to step up, to be faithful, to be an example, to be an influencer, to be a worker, to be a minister, to be a leader for heaven's sake. They need people to be a witness to the babes in Christ, to the young, to the unbelievers that walk into the house of God. I'm so tired of hearing my Sunday night's my family night. Yeah. Well, bring your family to church. Yeah. 
All I got to say about that is wait till your children become a teenager and they've never been able to connect with the children or the youth group at the church and see what happens to you. There are children right now that are out here in left field because mom and dad never brought them in and got them connected. If your young person don't want to go to youth group, it ain't, it ain't, it ain't, a, it ain't a democracy. It ain't where you, they can have what, you're the parent. Get them in the youth group. Get them connected. Because if they don't care, you know, kids will make, well, they don't like me over there. They're mean over there. And don't be a parent that's naive. When a kid don't want to do something, they'll find a hundred million reasons of why they don't like something. But if you'll be persistent and if you'll be a parent and you'll lead the way, they'll find connection somewhere with somebody and it'll be the best thing that'll happen in their life. There are parents paying hefty prices because their children never seen the importance to come to the house of God. And when they got over, they are not coming to the house of God. They're not bringing the grandchildren to the house of God. And their lives are a wreck and a mess. Can I have an amen? Parents, your kid doesn't need money so bad that they need to be working on Sundays either. A 14-year-old needs to be in the house of the Lord. They don't need to be working a job. You don't need the money that bad. Can I pastor here a little bit? Amen? My kids had to sacrifice. Well, yeah, but your kids are the pastor's kids. It doesn't matter. When they come time for a ball game on Wednesday nights, nope, they're not playing on Wednesday nights. But they're a part of the team. I don't care. The coach knew it. And we were strict on it. Why? Because I wanted them to understand the divine principle. The house of the Lord is more important than any single thing that you'll ever do in your life. And they weren't cheated. And they didn't lose out on their childhood. Poor little fellers. And they're not warped and they don't hate church today because dad had strict rules. Am I being too mean here today? God help me. To make it simple, if a man is right with God, he'll be in church, he'll be faithful to church, he'll serve the church, he'll give to the church, he'll work in the church. Spirit-filled people will love the church, embrace the church, support the church, serve the church, and most certainly be the church. Listen to what Hebrews 10 and 25 says. Not forsaking the assemblies of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. Folks, that's not a suggestion. This is God speaking to all of us. Don't forsake yourselves. As the manner of some is. There's people doing it. Don't follow the crowd. You might not like the end result. Forsake not the assembly. And, and he says, he's telling us that we're even exhorted to assemble ourselves together and so much more as the day of Jesus' return approaches us. Isn't it odd that God said in the last days before Jesus comes, you better spend more. You're gonna need it. You're gonna to have to symbol more, you're gonna need it. But what are we doing? We're coming to church less and less and less and less. We're doing just the exact opposite. I don't understand it. And everything has priority over the church. Everything sets precedence over the church. The church is way down the list. When I was a young boy, if the church had revivals in our hometown, even the businesses would shut down and everybody go to revival and there'd be a note on the store, in revival, closed. What's happened to us as a people of God? We even have parents grounding their children from church, punishing them, not understanding the power of the influence the church has and important as it is. Most people come to church about one and a half hours a week, the statistics say. People give God about one and a half hours to public worship. All across America, Sunday nights are no longer. Very few churches have them. 
Wednesday nights is on the rope. Most churches don't even have Wednesday night anymore. And it has become a Sunday service culture, one and a half hours at the most. And matter of fact, um, they're, they're saying all this other activity that they do is church. And it was Brian Matthews and Andre Fonseil that told me, just go to Africa. And when you go to Africa, the people walk for days and days and days and days just to get to church. And then when they get there, they stand in the hot sun out in the middle of the field and there'll be hundreds of thousands of them. Close, sweating, hot, 120 degrees outside. They'll stand for hours to hear the word of God preached. And Brian Matthews says, when I went over there, I could not believe the miracles that happen constantly right before my very eyes. He said, we'd lay hands on people that had been crippled their whole lives and boom, they would get up and they would start walking. Blind people would begin to be seen. He said, you talking about manifestations of the Holy Spirit in that kind of environment where there's a hunger and there's a dedication to come and to get in the presence of God. I wanna tell you, God shows up. Come on, somebody. But we come in an hour and a half and say, okay, God, you got this timetable. If you don't move in this timetable that we have set before you, then you're gonna miss out on being able to bless us. We put these demands upon God. Yes, we are to have devotions at home. Yes, we are to be students of the word at home. Yes, we are to have a lifestyle of worship at home. But don't call that the church. That ain't the church. Don't use your daily devotional activities and call it church. Well, we had church at home. No, you did not. You had your devotions at home. Don't call it the church. The church is the assembling of ourselves together. It is the coming together, the kononia, iron, where iron sharpens iron. It is the place of the prayer of agreement. It's the laying on of hands. It's the hanging on to a horn of an altar. It's the place that we pray one for another, exhort one another, fellowship with one another. Come on, somebody. It's a place where we worship together congregationally. It's corporate worship. It's the place of public worship, public service, public witness. It's the place where there's instruction and enlightenment and conviction and healing and confession. It's the place of accountability and responsibility and productivity. My body may be the temple of the Holy Spirit, but it's not the church. The collective body of Jesus Christ, which is known as the church, is made up of many believers, not just one believer. No one individual can claim to be the church. Listen to what Paul said. He summed it up this way. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 through 31. The human body is made up of many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. Does that make sense to you? My ear is not the body. My nose is not the body. My mouth is not the body. Thank God for that. The knee is not the body. What makes the body is all them put together. They form a body. Is that not right? Then he says, even so, it is with the body of Christ. I'm just a part of the body, a little bitty increment of the body, and so are you. Some of us are Jews, he said, some Gentiles, some are slaves, some are free, but we've all been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share that same spirit. Yes, the body has many different parts, not just one part. If the foot says, I'm not a part of the body because I'm not a hand, that does not make it less a part of the body. And if the ear says, I'm not a part of the body because I'm not the eye, that does not make it a less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, how would you hear? 
If the whole body were an eye, how would you hear? Or if the whole body were an ear, how would you smell anything? But our bodies have many parts and God has put each part just where he wants it. In other words, I want you to understand something. Those of you that are here today, you're not here by accident. You're not here by coincidence. You're not here because mom and dad raised you in this church. You're not here because you were born in the church. God has placed you here. This is your appointed place. We're not the only church, but every one of us has got a place of an appointment that we're to be steadfast and to be faithful to. Can I have an amen? We got all these people who want to run all over the country, wherever it's hot. Woo, boy, they're bullying over there. I think I'll go over there. Oh, they, they do this over there. They let coffee in the sanctuary. I'll go over there. And they try all these different kinds of things. The problem of it is, where's God called you and are you gonna be faithful to it? And number one, if, God, if you do go roaming around looking for something, you better make sure that it's of a biblical pattern. It's getting quiet in here. Am I getting on some people's nerves? I hope so. I'm getting on my own nerves sometimes. But it says, if the whole body were an eye, how would it hear? And if the whole body were an ear, how should it see, uh, uh, smell anything? But our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part just where he wants it. How strange a body would be if it only had one part? Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't have any need of you. In fact, some parts of the body that seem to be the weakest and the most, least important are actually the most necessary. Amen? Amen. Sum it up. I need you, you need me. And the church is all about building a holy inhabitation for him and not us. That's what church is about. It's not about us coming here and seeing what we can get out of church. It's about what can we do in order to worship him. This is about us coming in and connecting with one another in unison into the will of God and the purpose of God and lifting him up to where there can be a holy habitation, to where there can be signs and wonders and divers and miracles in the house of God. Look at what Paul said. You cannot say that. The hand cannot say to the foot, I don't need you. Foot can't say to the mouth, I don't need you. Come on. I want to tell you, we need each other. When one part of the body is missing, there's a void in the body. This is why the church has only functioned about 25%. What would happen if your physical body only functioned about 25% of the time? And yet, a lot of times, the house of God, we don't even understand what happens when we're absent. That means a part of the body, the workings, the inner, the inner fruitfulness and the inner effects of us not being there because of our giftedness and our talents and our assignment, when we're not here, there's a part of this body that's not working. Think about it if you only spent one and a half hours with your physical family every single week. Would you be married very long? What will your children be like? And yet we think that's acceptable with God. The only time we come to public worship is about an hour and a, hour and a half in a given week. Oh, I know we're with God during the you know, prayer times and the cell groups and the different times of our ministries. That's important. But that's not the church. Can I have an amen? It was Peter that said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, you also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house. And then he talks in the book of Ephesians, Paul does, I'm not gonna get into all of that, how the body is fitly framed together and every joint supplieth and every joint is joined together. 
In other words, there's an interlocking that what Mike can do on his own is very little, but when him and Connie lock together, the workload is increased because two, one can put a thousand to fly, two can put 10,000. What can happen when the full body's working? Connected, fitly framed together, everybody in their place. Amen? First thing he said was, we're lively stones that make up a spiritual house. No one individual is a house of God by themselves. What happens if these stones, are, well, there are stones missing in the building of a new home? You don't go by and see this, a new home being constructed and there's a wall of a thousand stones and out of those thousand stones, there's uh, 200 of them missing. Amen? You are a holy priesthood. You're a minister in the house of God. That's what we are in the New Testament. We're what holy priesthoods. Go look and see what priests done in the house of God. They served. And what did they do? They offered sacrifices unto God. This thing about you come to church ain't out to satisfy the pastor, make mom happy. Because it's the right thing to do or it's the response. It's you coming in and having a devotional, loving relationship with Jesus Christ among the believers and becoming a part of a big family called the family of God. Can I have an amen? And we're here to offer up spiritual sacrifices unto God, which is our reasonable service. This is all about sacrifice that God accepts. Are we gonna be an Abel or a Cain? Are we gonna do things God's way or are we gonna do with our way? Are we gonna convince ourselves, it's okay, that pastor's just stuck in the past. That's just not the way you operate in the 21st century. The problem of it is, yeah, we're following the culture and the culture's leading us down the sewer. Is your service and sacrifice gonna be accepted or rejected? The church is the assembling of the saints. It is the congregation of the righteous. It is the gathering of the believers. It's the unifying of the body. Why is it that we don't get, what is it that we don't get about the words that is repeated, seen, and repetitiously printed on the pages of the Holy Bible, which is the word of God? Assemble, gather, congregate, unify, fellowship, come together. What's God got to say for us not to get it? Can I have an amen? Folks, you can say whatever you want. You can make all the excuses you want, but I'm here to tell you the church is the tool, the vehicle, the system, the organization, the body, the vessel that God uses to facilitate his purpose and his will. It is, a, it is the means in which he ministers to his people in ways normally he would never minister to them in any other way. The church is also what Jesus Christ is coming back after. Anyone who neglects coming to church regularly is paying a hefty price and they're losing opportunities that they will never be able to recover. It's not the big booms, the explosions, the electrifying moments in a Sunday morning service that defines who we are as a people of God. It's the slow growth that you don't see by your persistence, your faithfulness, your steadfastness, and your obedience to the house of God that happens over a period of time, little by little, bit by bit. You know, you know what impresses God is not us coming here on a Sunday morning and having a blowout and then for the rest of the week, it's nothing. What presses God is on, here on Sunday morning, here on Sunday night, here on Wednesday night, here on revival night. And it's that continually coming, little by little, bit by bit, he drops things in you. 
and he's sharpening you. That impresses God. Amen? All across America, the only time that you can get somebody to do something outside of the hour and a half that they are devoted to on a Sunday morning is to get them involved in something. If they're involved, they'll do it. But if they're not involved, they won't do it. And when they're involved, they want everybody else to support them. Why ain't you there? Woo, that hit a nerve. I felt it. Amen? If I'm in charge, I want everybody to shout. But if you're in charge, I'm going to just sit back and I'm not going to shout at all. All of us are important. All of us are necessary. And God wants all of us to come together in unison with one mind and one accord. We need to build a momentum that's going to bring about a perpetual awakening to our country. The first thing that Moses done was to set out to build a tabernacle, the house of God, a sanctuary, a hiding place, a refuge. This is a hiding place. This is a, if, if there's ever a place to come and, and get help, it's here. It's right here. Ephesians 2, says, in whom you also are built together for a holy habitation of God through the spirit. In other words, it's the spirit that does it. Folks, the spirit, this is a spiritual thing to be here this morning. The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit leads and guides us in all truth. He'll lead you to the house of the Lord. The next thing we see in the book of Joel is chapter one. We see God judging Israel's. Things are bleak, they're dark, they're dangerous. The nation's in trouble. They're going to suffer great loss because of judgment. Israel was in idolatry. They're slothful, they're sound asleep, and God is bringing correction through corrective means of judgment. The Bible even proclaims it in chapter one as a day of destruction and ruin. He looks at the people of God and said, you're going to suffer these things. You're going to go through these things. The first signs of a people becoming complacent is they'll either pollute the house of God or they'll forsake it. That's the first sign. And when you see where Israel was at, this is where America's at right now. Folks, I don't know if you know it or not, but if something don't change, we're in serious, serious, serious trouble. I mean bad trouble. This is why that God always has to bring about tragedy and disaster and calamity in order to get people back to the house of God. You remember 911? Woo, that woke up the country for about a month. Houses filled up, record attendances, and people were flogging to it night and day because of tragedy and disasters. Why is it that the house of God is the most important thing in the world when tragedy hits, but in everyday life, it's not so important? I don't understand that. And what I really don't understand is this. Why is tragic when tragedy hits, the sinners come running, but when tragedy hits, the sinners, uh, the saints leave? Why is it that God has to bring calamity to a people in order to get their attention to bring them back on course and set the priorities back into their life? Romans 2 and 4 says, forsake not the assemblings of yourselves together as the manner of some is. No, I, that's, that's Hebrews 10, 25. Romans 2 and 4 says, why despise thou his goodness and forbearance, not knowing that it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. God does not want disaster to bring us to repentance. God wants the goodness of God to bring us to repentance. He wants preachers to get up and preach corrective messages and people, though it may hurt, may sting, that we get under conviction and we repent and we do the right thing. And that we don't have to face judgment. We don't have to face calamity. We don't have to lose our children in the process. Come on, somebody. Amen. To whom much is given, much is, much is uh, uh, 
Too much is given, much is expected, or much is required. How many believe that? That's what the Bible says. America has been given much. Folks, you've been given much. You're blessed, whether you know it or not. We're living too high on the hog, and we're fixing to come crumbling. Some people's gonna think, what in the world has taken place? I wanna ask you one little simple question. One little thing happened. What happens if the grid goes down for six months? You don't have no electric, no running water, no nothing. What are you gonna, you're talking about life change, honey. You're gonna go into life change. Too much is given, much required. I remember my grandfather, my mom would tell me these stories. She said, when I was a little girl, my dad would get up and he would, before daylight, he'd go out in the barn and get two old mules and he'd take them to the fields to where the plow was at. And there he would pull that plow until one of the mules would wear out and then he'd change and let the other one rest while the other one pulled the plow. My grandmother would fix him lunch, put it in a nice basket. Most of the time it was nothing but a little bit of beans, maybe some cornbread. And she would carry it wherever he was a mile down the road in a little basket, give it to him. They'd sit under a shade tree in a fence row and eat supper and he'd go back and get on that mule and he'd plow all day long until it became dark. And said he would come home at night, grandma would have his supper ready and he would sit down wringing wet in a chair and just collapse. And my grandmother would reach down and start pulling off his boots and he would start, oh, oh, and he'd, easy, easy. And she said, many times a tear would come out of his eyes as a grown man because it hurt so bad. And said, when we pulled the boots off every single night, she said, I've seen it all my childhood. He always loved to wear a big, long, top, tall, white socks where his boots wouldn't re, uh, rub his shins and they would be soaking wet and they would be red with blood. Where he walked all day long and get blisters and they would pop. And he done that day in and day out, day in and day out as a man. His hands, though he wore gloves, they were poor, he'd wear gloves out and he'd put two on, he would turn them upside down to try to get as much out of that glove as he could. His hands would split open and they would bleed and he had calluses that thick on his hands. And this is what this man done to make a living for his family. And then I get to thinking how spoiled we are. We can't even imagine that kind of a lifestyle. My grandmother said that she remembered the first time they saw an automobile. Said grandpa was plowing and all of a sudden there was a big boom, 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 boom coming down the car, car was coming down an old dirt road and it was backfiring and the mules started kicking and they ran off and grandpa was being drugged across the field. I said it was the first time that we seen an automobile and the animals didn't even know how to react to it. That's the kind of lifestyle they lived. They lived with coal oil lamps. My mother's dresses were made out of flour sacks they would go get a 50 pound bag of flour when they could afford it and they were made out of a certain cloth and my grandma would take those flour sacks and make dresses for my mom and my mom had to wear flour sacks to school. And we're so spoiled. We're so blessed and when I look around this place, I get to thinking, when I see the goodness of God and what all he's done for me, 
I can't help but want to come to the house of God and give him praise and give him glory and give him honor and thanksgiving. Won't you just stand and do that with me? Give him, then understand how blessed you are. Give him praise for your blessing. Out of that lifestyle, I went to see my mother. She turned 90 Tuesday. Prior to her birthday, I went one day and she had a moment that she was in her right mind just for a few minutes. I sat down. I said, she said, oh, son, I love you so much. I said, oh, mama, I love you too. And uh, she said, but I'm tired, and I'm telling you goodbye. I reached out, and I hugged her, and I said, Mama, you've been such a good mama. And I'm so sorry if I've offended you, if I've hurt your feelings. I'm sorry I've had to put you in a home and I'm just bawling and I'm just crying. I'm on my knees and I'm embracing her. That little old 90 year old hand come out and started patting me. Son, it's okay. You've done well. I said, yeah, mama, but I've gotten aggravated with your disease and stuff. I, don't, I haven't under, always understood it. Those of you that lose someone to mental health to Alzheimer's, it's horrible. You try to correct them, and that's the worst thing that you can do. You get in fights with them, and you get frustrated, and they can drive you crazy. And I was repenting over my actions toward her, and she was just patting me on the back. <laughs> and then she said something that just, well, I hope there's a little money left. I've tried not to buy anything. I've tried to save. I've tried to put up. I've tried not to live above my means, but I sure want to give you something. I want to make sure you'll have something. And I hope there's a little bit of my money left. And I thought, here's a woman drawing $800 a month, and she's trying to save money. She lived in a time and an era when she understood the value of stuff. And then she looked at me and she said, it won't be long now. And again, I'm gonna tell you by and boom, she went back into her Alzheimer's. And then that's the last time I've been able to talk to my mom when I thought she was in most of her mind. And I want us to understand that you and I are so blessed of where we're at. We can't even comprehend what some of them old people have went through and how they've sacrificed. It's almost like, oh, well, we just can't do anything. We got these three kids. Really? We have parents that are so selfish. Their kids have never been on a vacation with them. The parents has got to get away from the kids. 
I'm not saying it's wrong to have a vacation outside of your kids, but I want to tell you something. It's more important that you wrap your family around you. I'm pastoring here this morning. God, help me here. Holy Ghost, help me. Our text is the wake-up call in Joel. It is the emblem of a victory that's about to happen. It's found in verse 15 and 16 of our text. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, and those that suck the breast thereof. Now let's stop right there just for a minute. Have you not seen the key words? First of all, he said, blow the trumpet in Zion, set a sanctified fast, call a solemn assembly. He's calling a solemn assembly. He's saying, if you want things to turn around, you better gather. You better come together as a people of God. You better show me that you're unified. You better show me that you really want what you say that you want. And you better be willing to make the proper sacrifices in order to get, obtain my blessings. He says, gather the people. What does that mean? Come together. Sanctify the congregation. What the word congregation means? The gathering of people. He says, and don't leave the children out. Gather the children. The children need to be in the house of God. Even those that suck the breast. I remember Sister White, 90 some years old, Brother White, my pastor's mother, I got out with Benjamin when he was a little bitty boy wrapped in a, a blanket and I picked him up and she come over to me and she said, young man, start now. Now's the time you start training. That boy wasn't six months old. I'm here to tell you that our children need the house of God. God said she'd had all these earthly connections. You've had your businesses, you've had your friends, you've had your sports, you've had it all, but now it's a time for you and me to meet up. You've been in meetings, you've been in, you've been in your conversations, you've been in your languages, you've been in your fellowships at home and abroad, but it's now, it's time that you and I hook up. It's time that me and you have a connection. It's time that you and I converse. God says the next in that same verse, let the bridegroom go forth out of his chambers and the bride out of her closet. We're the bride. He says the king's been in his chambers. He's been in a place of rest. He's been silent. You haven't seen much out of him. You've not heard much out of him. But he said, I want things to change. He says, I'm, I'm ready to come out of my bedroom I'm ready to come out of my chambers. But when I do, I expect to see you assembled and out of your closets, out of your dwellings, out of your private places, out of your hidden places, out of the places that preoccupy you, out of the things that take up your time. 
He says, I'm coming out and the stipulation is you come out with me and you come to where I'm at and watch out. Things are gonna pick up. Judgment's gonna be lifted. Now, I'm gonna preach the rest of that um, maybe in a week or so of what all takes place here. But doesn't that sound familiar? The first act of victory was to have a solemn assembly where they gathered, where they were to come together in one place. What's Acts 2 and 1 say? And when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were in one mind and one accord in one place. And then what happened? Then suddenly, there came a sound from heaven. God shows up. The trumpet or the horn or the alarm was blown. God spoke to me several months ago and he told me, to have Matt play that shofar or the trumpet. I gave him his decision because they both were used. And he said, before every service, I want you at 10, about 20 or whenever it is, go out there on that front porch and start blowing. And he blows three different sounds. The sound of an awakening, the sound of invitation, and then the sound of alarm. And I want you to know every Sunday there's a sound of that invitation, a sound of an awakening, a sound of alarm over our church. When I was a young boy, there would be a church bell ring at 10 minutes to 10 saying, you got 10 minutes to get to Sunday school. It had a certain sound. At 10 o'clock, it ringed again, said Sunday school has begun. At 11 o'clock or 10 to 11, the bell would ring again and it had so many rings saying and declaring, church is about to start, start assembling, start gathering. And here, that was the same kind of thing that they used in the Old Testament with the trumpet. And God spoke to me, and I'm not trying to go back to the Old Testament, but God spoke to me and told me to have Matt do it. I even got on the internet, looked up all the different sounds and how they sounded so that he could practice them to try to make them as authentic as he could. And when I, I told him I got them on recorded, I'll see them to you, he said, there's no need, because almost a year ago, God told me to study them out, and I didn't know how to do them. And you know what that is? That's God calling this church into a special time of a solemn assembly. That's no coincidence. How many thinks that's a coincidence of what happened? How many believes it's of a divine order that that happened? Then are we gonna obey that? Are we gonna take that serious? Are we gonna understand the seriousness of what God's calling us to? We have to gain our momentum. We have to have each lively stone in place. Each service must be kissed with a holy kiss. And I want to tell you, folks, I'm being honest. When you come together and have the congregations, the momentum's down. We got to have a, you, you, there, there's no reason why that if all of us would not come together and get a momentum, every one of us would enjoy church. Every one of us would it, would, be, it would be blistering hot. I went back in the old, everybody's always talking about Ninth and Cedar, and I thought, what made Ninth and Cedar so great? And I went back and looked in pictures. There are pictures where you couldn't get another person in that building on Sunday night, Monday, Sunday morning. It was jammed, completely packed. On Wednesday nights, you'd open a the door, there'd be kids in there like this. That's what made it special. It was everybody in their place and there was a honor of God upon that congregation because we were obeying the biblical principle 
of Scripture by assembling our. Now, I know, and you can, argue, you can argue the point, well, it's not always about a Sunday night, Sunday morning, Wednesday night. I know in different parts of the world they have it at different days and different nights. It's not about the day or the timing. It's about what we do as a church. And God wants us to assemble. We have to have each voice lifted, each hand raised, each knee bowed, each heart worshiping. There needs to be a congregation making a joyful noise of the Lord and entering in his gates with thanksgiving, entering his courts with praise and being thankful and blessing his holy name. We have to get into unity and when we do, there's no stopping us. When we get the church right, then we can have our homes right, our families right, our, our schools right. I've been wanting to start a revival and this is gonna sting a little bit but I, and I have almost not even went this far but I'm going to. I've been praying for revival for a long time now. And I said, God, who do we get? I want the right person, not just a friend, not somebody I know. I've been praying, God, is there an evangelist out there that can come that will be moved on by the Holy Spirit, used in the Holy Spirit? I've been inquiring, I've been seeking, I've been asking around, I've been fasting. And I said, God, give me the right person. If it is my friend, fine. If it's not my friend, that's okay. And I said, and when do you want the revival? I've had the men on the, on the porch on Monday night that we pray together, I've had them praying over this as well. And a few Sunday nights ago, God gave me an answer. And he said, you're not ready for revival. And then he showed me why. Shay Hughes had come in that week to preach our men's rally and on Friday night, that man preached. Man, the people were blessed, had a great group of men here, and I want to thank you for that. Sunday morning, he comes up and he preaches again. Didn't he not do a fabulous job? How many enjoyed that? <laughs> Throughout the last few years, you do not know the amount of people in our congregation. When are you going to have Shay back? When are you going to have Shay back? When's Shay coming? When's Shay? Everybody loves him. He's one of the most notable ministers that I've had. He's got more reviews than any preacher that I've had. People loving, people wanting, people. Man, man, when he comes, there, there are people that don't even come to church here. When he comes, they come. That's how much he's loved. That's how much he's revered. And I thought, well, if Randy's gonna have him on that Friday night, I'll hang over, have him Sunday morning and Sunday night. And I just knew Sunday night service was gonna be just jam-packed because Shay was there Man, people love him, they want to hear him. And actually, we had a pretty good attendance. And I was so thrilled until I really got to analyzing the crowd. A lot of them were here because Becky was graduating from Crossway. And they were gassed. Give Becky a hand. And I seen all the people that were here just for her from different churches and different ministries and, and family and different people. And I thought, man, it's so good to see them in the house of God. This is an opportunity for us to make a great impression. Amen? Amen? And then there were others here, a big multitude of people that were here because we had 34 people baptized. Grandpas, grandmas, family members that had never come, but they come to see their loved one baptized. Isn't that beautiful? Give the Lord praise for that. 
Oh yeah, we're praising him now, aren't we? But the biggest thing that was missing was the church. Thirty-four people get baptized. This place already had a thousand people in it, rejoicing and support. It ain't about us. This place ought to have been bouncing off the walls. Amen. Someone that's recovering from an addiction life that's overcame, that's a sister in Christ. This place ought to have been running the pews. But we have people saying, well, I was there in spirit. Now, let me lighten the load a little bit. I know every one of you love those people. I know that we care. We're just distracted. And we're not paying attention to how important it is just to have simple obedience, whether we feel it or not, whether we like it or not, to have just a simple sacrifice our church services on Ninth and Cedar, man, we used to get out one, one thirty in the morning. I mean, at one thirty in the afternoon, I'd preach like crazy. I was young. Say, well, you ain't changed much. <laughs> at night, we'd start at seven o'clock. Many nights, midnight, we'd get out. Eleven o'clock at night, most of the time nine thirty, ten o'clock, we'd get out. Wednesday nights, we started at seven, went to nine, two hours. Nowadays, we shortened everything to try to make everything as relative as we can without getting rid of biblical principle. We have about an hour and a half here, 10.30 to 11 o'clock. We have our Sunday school, but most of the time, morning worship's about 10.30 to noon, about an hour and a half. Wednesday night is one hour. Sunday night, we're out by 7.30, hour and a half, you're talking about four hours of your time. Four hours. But we don't have that much time in order to have public worship. We don't have enough time to sacrifice that in order to get a momentum in the house of God. Let's really analyze this of where we're at. Let's really think. We've got to repent. I'm calling a solemn assembly. Lord, help me. I'm calling for the saints. We need you. We need it. What would happen if we go to battle? The church has been in the battle, but what happens if we go into battle and only 30% of our warriors show up? We're in trouble. No matter how much we war, no matter how much God wants to favor us, the full impact of victory can't happen because there are people not faithful. We need you. You need us. It's not about you liking the church every service. I don't like some of them. I'm human. There's some I like better than others. There's some preachers I like better than others. There's times I don't even like my own preaching. 
There's time I go home, she said, what's wrong? I said, man, I blew it this morning. I was off my game today. Boy, I'm telling you, God showed me my humanity this morning. Come on, I go through those things, but the difference is I'm here. Even if I've blown it, I learn by it. I grow through it. I'm stretched by it. I'm challenged. But that's the problem. Just give me my pajamas. Give me my cup of coffee. Well, I don't like coffee if it's me. Give me my pajamas and a big glass of milk and a carton of ding-dongs and we'll have church. <laughs> and I'll watch you online. Now, I know I've been a little hard as a pastor here this morning. And I don't mean to be. I love you. But truth's truth. God instructed the thing called the church. The church is the vehicle. All these other ministries, all these other things are wonderful, needful. We have to do them. It's us living life outside of the church. That's vitally important. But it can't take the place of the church. And here's what we do. Well, I do this on Monday night, and I do that on Friday night, and I do that. But, you know, that, therefore, my church is those nights. If that's the case, then stop doing some of the things during the week. Be faithful to the house of God for four hours a week. Four hours. Some of you got to work. I understand that. That's fine. You can't be here. I don't want you to quit your job because you work on a Sunday. That ain't what I'm telling you to do. But the times that you can be faithful, be faithful. Vacation time, go on vacation. Enjoy your family. We're not, we're not ridiculous here. I'm pastoring. Use common sense. For me and my house, I'm gonna teach that little one how important it is to be in the house of God. And one of these services, you're gonna come, whether it be Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and there's gonna be a holy kiss happening. You think, oh, I'm so glad I was there. Be at the right place at the right time that God may give you the kisses of his mouth because he's coming out of the bed chambers. Let's come out of our closets. Let's have an asylum assembly. Would you stand with me? Now I want to do one thing and then we're going to close. Real fast. Make it simple. Just start marching this way. Crowd in just for a moment. Crowd in just for a moment. Get as close as you can to the altars, guys. Don't, don't leave no spaces. We got a large congregation here today. I've been asked to take up an offering at, at, at state camp meeting this week. I've been praying about what to say. The Lord led me to a parable in the book of Matthew chapter 18. I think it's a fit emblem of what God's wanting to say to us right here, right now. There was a king. I'm gonna simplify it for you. He's going over his notes and his log of his finances. He finds out that there's a man that owes him, one translation says, millions and millions of dollars, a big sum, and has it paid. He had that man summonsed, and he says, I want you to pay my money, or you're going to go to prison. And the man said, oh, would you work with me? Would you be a little patient with me? And before long, the king had pity upon him. 
and the pity had, com- and yet the king had compassion upon him, and forgave him of all of his debt, millions of dollars. And then that man that was forgiven of much went out and found a man that owed him. One translation said a thousand dollars, another said a hundred dollars, a small amount, just a little bit, and said, "You owe me this amount of money. If you don't pay me, I'm going to have you put into prison." And the man said, oh, would you work with me? Oh, would you be patient? But he would not. And he had the man put into prison. And when the king found it out, he was wroth. He was mad. And this is what he said. He summons the man back into his presence. And the king said, you who have been forgiven of much will not forgive little. And he was wroth, and he threw him in prison until the debt was paid and be tormented. And I thought about that, and it summed it up in a different twist. You who have been given much, will you not just please give a little of your time with me? Can we not gather four or five hours a week together as a family? Get our momentum going get unified in purpose, understand that we're there for a reason, find that reason, begin to fulfill it, begin to be steadfast, people that can be counted on. And when a young convert comes in, he'll look and say, oh man, oh Susie, she's a woman of God. Betty, every time the doors are open, she's there. But it sends mixed messages. When a young convert gets saved and all of a sudden they see Sister Susie on Sunday, but that's all they ever see her. When we have baptisms, we need to bring everybody we possibly can, even if it's just one person getting baptized. And when they go under, we need to stand to our feet and yell and scream and celebrate the life that's been forgiven. Because even the angels of God rejoice over one soul that comes to God. That is the witness in heaven of what we're supposed to be doing. When someone graduates from Christ's way, this place ought to be full of the saints of God. Happy, rejoicing that someone has made it. Why? Because we were that person at one time. We have been, <laughs> we have been forgiven. I'll never forget an old man one time coming to a church service. And he sat and he watched a young man who had the earmarks of discouragement upon his face. And all of a sudden, the boy was walking down the aisle and the old man grabbed him and said, young man, I don't remember his name, what's wrong? He said, man, I can't feel God. I don't even know why I'm here. I come and nothing ever seems to happen in my life. Everybody tries me to tell me to try this church stuff, but I come and nothing really seems to be happening. It did in the early days, but it ain't happening anymore. I don't know what's wrong. And the old man looked over and he seen another young man struggling. He said, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to go over and lay hands on that man and pray for him. 
And that young man went over there and just prayed a little simple prayer. And when he did, the other man collapsed and began to pray and cry and weep. And God used that young man as an instrument. And when the young man got up, he looked at his, the other young man and grabbed him and they hugged and they cried together. And when it was all over, the old, that young boy was walking out and the old man grabbed him and said, see son, church ain't always about you. It's about what you can do. You're there for a purpose. You were always trying to find God to do something for you when God was trying to get you to do something for him. We're so focused on ourselves. Every service does not minister to me in a deep way. It does minister in ways that I don't even know, but I don't always understand it or know it or see it. But every time I come to the house of God, God's adding, he's critiquing, he's sharpening, he's doing something in my life. But more importantly, he's allowing my life to be used as a witness for him. Right now, would you make a commitment in your heart to the house of the Lord as much as you can? Would you pray that word and commit? Bow your heads. Ask God to forgive you of your slack. Ask God, say, Lord, I'm sorry. I never looked at it that the church ain't about me, but the church is about you. And it's not always that I need the church, but the church needs me. And I realize that now. I want to be a part of the tabernacle, the gathering, the congregation the part of the coming together, the part of the solemn assembly. God wants to do something special, but he's trying to unify us. He's trying to get our vision on the same track. And we can't do that being scattered and separated. We all have to hear the same messages, enjoy the same songs, and understand the principles of where God's leading us, the same vision. Send us revival. Ask God now that we're gathered to send revival. Pray that prayer. Would you, you've repented, get over it, move on, and I say, God, send us revival. Help us build our momentum. Create an excitement in the house of God that we see it for what it is. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for the awesome privilege. Let me be like David. I was glad when they said, let's come to the house of the Lord. Oh, God, help us to celebrate everything that you do, every testimony, God. Oh, God, let us celebrate with everything that's within us for your glory's sake and we give you the praise in Jesus' name. Now do one more thing. I want you to grab people that you can trust and you know and hug them, tell them you love them, they're you're there for them and that we're all a part of the body of Christ and we need each other. Would you do that? Hug one another. Embrace one another. Share one another. <laughs>